Well, today our sermon, and we're coming off of observing the, the resurrection of our Lord, but the resurrection is forever, right? So we're going to continue, and it's been kind of a theme as we've gone forward in the last few weeks since Easter, and today this is a resurrection sermon. But it's not just a resurrection sermon. It's a sermon that, that I hope encourages you and edifies you in our knowing him, in our believing, in our seeing. And that is the way it is written. And it's also written in a way that um, will help guide us into knowledge and understanding. So let us go to the Lord in prayer. Ask his blessing on our time today. Our gracious God in heaven, we come at this time, and we come because you have you have called. You have called in a quiet, still voice, Lord, that your people would, would come to know you, that they would be able to see you, Lord, and hear you, Lord. We pray that as we go through this time today that you will edify us, build us up, Lord, even sanctify us in your word. Your word is truth. We have much to be thankful for, Lord, but I pray today that we would be eager to hear and eager to see that you would bless this time, bless your word. I pray today that you would just hide me, Lord, as we pray often, hide me behind the cross of Christ Jesus as we go through this. Christ, the only one true Savior and Redeemer, that you would be glorified in these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. So it's been a while for me, and as we come to this time today, the title I guess you saw in your bulletin, The Road to Emmaus, and I've kind of put a little extra thing in that, is seeing believing. As we go through it, maybe you'll understand that. But here, as we begin, Emmaus, seven miles, kingdom of God. As Siri would say, you have arrived at your destination. Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24. I have verses 13 and following 13 through 42 for the context of today's message. That's where we will be at today. And it's just three days after the resurrection as we as we come to this. Let us let us read. And behold, on that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were kept or prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they came to a stop or stood still, looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you possibly the only one living near Jerusalem who does not know about the things that happened here in these days? And he said to them, What sort of things? What things? And they said to him, Those about Jesus the Nazarene, who proved to be a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and crucified him. The 
we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us left us amazed or bewildered. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And so some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And then he said to them, You foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to come into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. And so they strongly urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And it came about when he had reclined at the table with them that he took the bread and blessed it. And he broke it and began giving it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were our hearts not burning within us when he was speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them at the breaking of the bread. Now, while they were telling these things, Jesus himself suddenly stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were looking at a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you frightened? And why are doubts arising in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I, myself. Touch me and see. Because the spirit does not have flesh and bones as you plainly see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still not could believe it because of their joy and astonishment, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they served him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in front of them. I had come across these verses in preparation for Resurrection Sunday a few weeks back. And it's during some of my normal Bible reading, and it just seemed fit with what we've been hearing and, and reading recently, especially right here after Easter. I've grown to love and appreciate the lessons of scriptures by always watching for the spiritual lesson that normally accompanies the physical lessons or material lessons. Even the word watching that I just used is a figure of speech. So, Saying, I am always watching for the spiritual lesson means what? I am perceptive in that attention. Sensing may be a better way to say it because sensing is maybe a better way to say it because this is something that I can't actually see with my literal eyes, but the eyes of our minds or hearts. In this way, it's not capable of outward being visible. Does that mean that we don't understand? Absolutely not. It informs our intellect and our thoughts. It even helps to form our conscience and our reality for that matter. As we work 
through these verses, I want us to listen with ears to hear, but hearts to see. And that's a figure of speech. God saw fit in all his wise and all-knowing providence to give us five senses. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. These are used by our physical bodies and inform and train our minds. This is a fact of creation that cannot be denied. He created us this way for a purpose, and he called it good before the creation was corrupted by sin. And I'm aware that there are people who are born without one or more of these senses, which is not apart from his providence. Some can observe that missing one or more of these senses also heightens the abilities of the others. We can also say any and all of our senses used rightly in accordance with his own design can glorify God in their use as in any part of our bodies can and do. It's important to note here that this introduction's focus on senses will not be left to the imagination, but be supported by plainly written and plainly to be understood scripture. Our primary focus will be on seeing, as we've already used an example, but I've also noticed every God-given sense is employed in this text. And we need to make some sense out of it. Now let's look and see what the scripture has for us today. We have two people, one for sure is a man. They're walking down the road. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem, about a four-hour walk at normal speed. And that's about a ten-minute drive at 70 miles an hour. Man, times have changed for the better, right? And they were talking with each, other, with each other about all these things which had taken place. And I cannot help but think, what was that conversation like? It's three days had passed. In just three days, we have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem with all the pomp and circumstance, and they sang, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And we also have Jesus preparing his disciples with promises and prayer for what is to come. We have the Lord's Supper. We have Judas' betrayal, the prayer in the garden, the arrest, and Jesus betrayed with a kiss. We have the mock trial. They spit on him. They plucked the hair out of his face. He was slapped. He was beaten, scourged with whips of leather, with bits of material and bone tied in them. His flesh shredded by the lashes. By his stripes we are healed. Bloodied and beaten, almost unrecognizable. The crown of thorns mashed down into his skull. And then that purple robe placed on him. Our sin on his head and his robe of righteousness. Pilate had even declared his innocence. I find no guilt in him. And screams, crucify him, crucify him. The switching of the prisoners. The Passover lamb was prepared for the sacrifice. Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. The ultimate betrayal, an earthly king instead of an eternal heavenly sovereign who adopts us as his own children. 
Is that enough? Are those enough things? Is it? No! It's not finished. He was handed over to them to be crucified, bearing that awful curse of death on a tree. He carried that cross for you. Up the hill to the place of the skull, Golgotha. Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written in multiple languages so that all could read that cross and pass there. And it said, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. They laid him on that cross. They took his hands. The hands that had done miracles. The hands that had healed the blind and the deaf and, and mute and crippled. And the, the hands that had also washed the disciples' feet. They held him there on that cursed tree and they took a nail and they drove it right through him into the cross. They took his feet, those feet that had walked on the same ground and likewise they nailed him there hand and foot. That cross, cross was lifted up and it dropped down in that hole. Oh cursed tree, that's where our blessings be. The song, oh, Old Sacred Head Now Wounded, that we just sang in our hymnal. It says, Old Sacred Head Now Wounded with Grief and Shame Weighed Down, Now Scornfully Surrounded with Thorns, Thine Only Crown. Old Sacred Head, what glory, what bliss till now was thine. Yet thou despised in glory, I joy to call thee mine. This is where we should love him the most. He hung there while they had stripped him and, and gambled for his clothes, humiliating him and taunting him. And John 19 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of his and they brought it to his mouth. And therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit and he bore our sin unto death. Darkness fell over the land, Matthew 27, 51 through 54. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two. It was torn from the top to the bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Also, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now as for the centurion and those who were, were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the other things that were happening, they became extremely frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus was then taken down, wrapped in linen, and placed in a tomb until on the third day, just as had been written and foretold, on the third day, out of the grave he came. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Jesus said, as recorded in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it back. 
No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back. This commandment I received from my Father. It's our word for our Lord. So let's get back to the road. Death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't hold him. Not even hell could hold him. In this conversation in verse 15 about the things that had taken place, there was these things and, and much more, but they were only going seven miles. Just seven miles. Very near. I hope at this point that your hearing is at attention. I'm saying that our two witnesses and Luke were eyewitnesses to these things. And not only them, but we know that there were plenty other eyewitnesses, and these disciples especially. These are not mere stories. They're not mere myths, but these are actual events. They are history, and they are documented, and they are supported by thousands of years of writings and research and fact-checking. No one denies there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth crucified. And you cannot deny it. As a matter of fact, all of Christendom is a testimony. As a matter of fact, all of creation and time testifies. As a matter of fact, your presence here today testifies of Christ Jesus. Look around you if you need facts. These cannot be refuted. And they were talking with each other about these things in verse 14. They were talking with each other about these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were kept or prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they came to a stop. Stood still. Looking sad. I don't think it's a mistake that, that this time there are two witnesses because that's all the witnesses that were required. I don't believe in luck, but I can say these witnesses' good fortune was about to change forever. So as they walked, Jesus approached and began traveling with them. It's as if they didn't even break stride. He comes to them there on that road. He traveled with them, beside them. Verse 16 says, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And it's hard to believe that they just didn't even notice from John Calvin. For though Christ remained like himself, he was not recognized because the eyes of the beholders were held. And this takes away all suspicion of a phantom or a false imagination. But hence we learn how great is the weakness of all our senses, since neither eyes nor ears discharge their office unless so far as power is in constantly communicating them to them from heaven. Or members do indeed possess our members do indeed possess their natural properties, but to make us more fully sensible that they are held by us at the will of another, God retains in his own hand the use of them, so that we ought ever or always to reckon it to be one of his daily favors, that our ears hear and our eyes see, for if he does not every hour quicken our senses, all their power will immediately give away. I would add that this goes for our hearts also. Brothers and sisters in Christ, 
Christ is beside us on our road every day. The question is, are you looking for him there? Maybe a better way to say it is, are you aware even? Can you see Christ in our everyday blessings? He's not only in our blessings, but in our very lives. Do we take him for granted? Do we even give him the time of day? Do we give him the honor and reverence due? It's by his power we even take one breath or one step. He upholds all things by the power of his will. Verse 17, and he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they came to a stop and stood still looking sad. Is it as if he didn't know? He asked them about their speaking, but their body language is not left out. It says they were looking sad. Here Christ comes beside them and he listens. He also is in, in no insignificant way about to guide them into knowledge and knowledge that they already had, but needed a good reminder. Much like us today. Let's be encouraged. By his question, he incites a response, and Cleopas' name here, the only one of the witnesses for which we can be sure, was a disciple, maybe one of the seventy, the, the dispersed, the dispersion. And by his answer, we can see that he has knowledge. He also has a heart that may not even, that he may not even realize he has. With love and the care of Jesus and his guidance, we know that we are chastised by God. We're God's children and are in constant requirement of it. And it's coming. Philip's response is a kind of, where have you been? Haven't you heard? Have you had your head in the sand? That's me paraphrasing, but in verse 18, it says, Are you possibly the only one living near Jerusalem who does not know about these things that happen here in these days? And Jesus nudges his mind and his heart. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, those about Jesus the Nazarene who proved to be a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and crucified him. Jesus the Nazarene. In society then, nothing good comes from Nazareth. John Gill says concerning Jesus of Nazareth, that is, what had happened to him, who was commonly known by his name, it was called so by way of contempt, but not only a foreteller of things to come, as he foretold his sufferings, death, and resurrection, the troubles that should befall his disciples, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the end of the world, but he was a preacher of the gospel, an eminent one, a famous and extraordinary one, that prophet which Moses spake of and should come who was mighty in need and word and was anointed with the Holy Ghost and with power, which he showed by the miracles he wrought, such as healing the sick, cleansing lepers, casting out devils, devils, restoring sight to the blind, causing the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak, the lame to walk, and raising the dead to life, and in the doctrines he taught, which were with authority. And such as a never man spake, he was sent and anointed by God as a prophet and approved by him, who bore testimony to him by voice from heaven, declaring him to be his beloved son. And the works he wrought were done publicly before men, 
who glorified God on that account, and the doctrines he taught were not taught in secret, but in the synagogues and in the temple, and in the audiences of the people, and to their surprise and admiration. Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 21. But we were hoping that he, it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. I've noted, where was the hope? The faith. Was their hope misplaced? Is our hope misplaced? Are we looking for a material, worldly king that frees us from the bondage of oppression or from the government? One that would just heal our aches and pains? Have they missed the lesson that day when the true Redeemer was studied? The true Redeemer that was promised would save his people, Jew and Gentile. His elect would be saved from the power of sin and be given the power of everlasting life. Because of the atoning sacrifice of the spotless lamb, sins would be forgiven. Salvation provided through the blood of Jesus Christ the Messiah. No longer in bondage to sin and his damning power and the slavery of Satan, but now no condemnation. You see, the price has been paid by he himself. Now there's no condemnation but forgiveness of sin for all those who believe. No, their hope wasn't misplaced but misunderstood. Are you misunderstanding our hope? Are you looking for a conqueror who will save the world? Or are you looking for a victory who can save us from death, hell, and the grave? Stop looking for worldly euphoria. Look for an eternal one. It is Christ who is our only hope. He is the faithful one. He is the obedient one. He is the one that has fulfilled all righteousness on the cross that day. And he is the one that trades his robe of righteousness for our filthy rags. Not only that, but also it is the third day since the cross. Maybe there was some understanding after all. Here the tide turns. Here their hearts and minds return towards hope in the resurrection. He is the resurrection. So they have been reminded of who he is and what he was to do. And they now have some expectation of the hope that lies before them. You see, this discourse wasn't for Jesus, the stranger, but it was for them to see who he truly was. They had the testimony of some of the other disciples and the testimony of Peter and John of the empty tomb already. Verse 22 says, but also some women among us left us bewildered when they were at the tomb early in the morning, they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And so some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. Now here comes the reproof. Verse 25. And then he said to them, You foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and come into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. Gil says here, O fools, not in the natural sense, as they were destitute of common understanding of men, nor in a moral sense as wicked men, and as they themselves had been in their unregenerate estate, nor in a way of anger and contempt and with a design to provoke, wherefore Christ did not act contrary to his own rule, but because they were so void of understanding. 
in the scriptures. And they were so very ignorant of them. And they were so blind as to the knowledge of them. Particularly those which concern the sufferings and the resurrection of the Messiah. Here Jesus' reproof is not is for not understanding and for not believing basically in the written word and also the spoken word. And these are two potentially tragic errors. He uses the phrase slow of heart. If we believe something in something strongly enough, must we delay in our responses? Or should it be more like a reflex, an automatic even? We shouldn't let doubt or fear cause us to be slow. We should put our hand to the plow and not look back. Not these things he did were ever for us to do. Those were particular to him and him alone. But the works we are to do are for him. For his glory, the chief end of man, glorify God. It is his glory and we only partake. Verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. The New Testament was not even written yet. But the real testament was there present with them in the explaining. He explained all the things that the Christ would suffer and do, and no doubt there was much more explained. Their countenance must have changed. It had to. Later they said their hearts burned. To hear about Christ from Christ, isn't that why we are even here today? To hear Christ preach, you see, everything about Christ doesn't leave Christ in the grave. No need to be sad. We have a risen Savior who lives and is on the throne with all authority. You see, if we live Him in the grave, we haven't preached the whole gospel. The verse said earlier that they were sad. Yes, if we don't preach the entire gospel, we should be sad. But that's not the whole story. It's not the whole gospel. We would all be pickle-faced Christians if we left them in the grave. If that's our understanding, it's wrong. We have the testimony of the Old and New Testament. We should be able to see with better lenses. And it's not as if they didn't have a way to see them either. We can see dimly now, but one day we will see clearly. What does that mean? Well, physically, we won't need glasses. That's right. In heaven, we won't need glasses. But we're not talking about seeing physically. We're talking about seeing spiritually. With the eyes of our hearts, the very hearts he puts into us and circumcises with his own finger, he takes that cold, hard, dead heart of stone and gives you a heart that lives. Verse 28, and they approached the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. And so they strongly urged him, saying, stay with us, for he's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. They arrived at their destination. And you? 
He acted like he was going on farther, but there is no deceit in him. We know this. He shows by his actions he can go on, yes, even without you, because what do you add to his glory? What do we have to bring to the table apart from him? It's not as if God needed any of us, but here we see he comes to us. Even all the way to our destination. Don't misunderstand our hope. It was he that paid the price. He loved us first. The first move is by him. We just may not be aware of it. We not, may not even be looking. It may come in the form of loving parents who want to raise their children in the admonition of the Lord. It may be loving relatives or brothers and sisters in Christ. It may be in a church where the gospel is preached. It's definitely in the written word. It's in the scriptures in the Old and New Testament. And it is definitely in the word preached. After all, how can they hear without a preacher? Hear him today. Don't stiffen your neck and harden your hearts as they did in the day of the wilderness or in the day of your sins. You see, he's calling. The scripture says he stands at the door and knocks. So he's standing before your heart. You don't have to walk another mile. You don't have to think another second. Just believe the voice of the good shepherd and obey. Verse 30, and it came about when he had reclined at the table with them that he took the bread and blessed it and he broke it and began giving it to them and then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Gil again says, and their eyes were open. Not that they were before shut or closed up, but what before held them was removed and what hindered their sight and knowledge was taken away. And perhaps these actions of his taking the bread and blessing it and breaking and giving it to them might put them in mind of him and cause them to look wistfully at him. When that what beclouded their sight was gone and he appearing in his usual form, they perceived who he was and they knew him. And they knew him to be their dear Lord and Master for whose death they had been sorrowing and of redemption by him and of whose resurrection they had been doubting and they had to stop with their son. I put here, he vanished out of their sight but he never vanished from their hearts ever again. There's a lot here, but it, it's significant to see the breaking of the bread and the fellowship with him. This is a common meal at that time, but it's not the Lord's table, although there is some shadowing. And some significant observations here that I made is he reclined there. There's rest here. He, he took the bread and he blessed it. He was in someone else's house, but he blessed it. The gift was provisions. The gift is his grace. And he began giving it to them. Would you take it? Would you take it? If you said yes, then be blessed by the Lord. It is from his own hand. 
Gil had said his thing with him was just modesty or civility or prudence because there's no guile in him, but I see significance in every word and action, and their eyes were open, both their physical eyes and the eyes of their heart. They said to one another, were our hearts not burning within us when he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? This is where we should be every Lord's Day, or any day for that matter. This is the verse that excited me about sharing it with you. Although this whole message has been chock full of gospel, this is where the rubber meets the road. When we ponder our wonderful Savior, do we think rightly? Do we think deeply of His great love for us? Do we come here expecting to hear from Him and worship and praise Him? Do we have enthusiasm or zeal that we need to serve Him in obedience, to, to be the stewards and servants that will honor and glorify Him? Is your heart burning with you to hear His Word preached and taught? We need to know what it is to yearn for His truth and yearn for the promises and blessings of His people. And I say, why can't we? Why can't we? Verse 33, and they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. That very hour they got up, returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and those who were with them saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And then they began to relate their experience on the road and how he was recognized by them at the breaking of the bread. And I cannot help but think about the walk back. It was almost a run. How could it not be? It's getting late in that very hour they got up. They didn't delay. Let's not let doubt or fear delay us. Let us run the race set before us. I wondered if they were back in Jerusalem even within the very hour testifying of a risen Savior. They couldn't wait to share the news. Why? It's been continued to be shared since, the, since that day. In church, you testify even this very day of a risen Savior. It says he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. And in our observance of the Lord's table, we recognize him by public, publicly proclaiming our fellowship with him. We proclaim his life, his sacrifice, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension and exaltation. We don't leave him in the grave. He lives and he lives within us. His love and grace and mercy are ever before us. Can you see? I'm sure by now some are thinking, can we get off this road? Can we get off this road to Emmaus? Are we there yet? How about a rest stop? We're almost there. We need to find the exit. And there's more here than we have time for today, so let's, let's finish it up. Now, while they were telling these things, it says, Jesus himself suddenly stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were looking at a spirit, and he said to them, Why are you frightened? And why are doubts arising in your hearts? See my hands, see my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, Because the Spirit does not have flesh and bones as you plainly see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and astonishment, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they served him a piece of raw fish, and he took it and ate it in front of them. 
It strikes me that immediately as they finished their testimony, he appeared and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Peace itself stands in our midst. Unity stands in our midst. We come before the throne today because he removed the veil to the holy of holies. He is peace, and anyone with the eyes of their hearts can see that there is truly no real peace apart from Christ. If this is true, then there is no reason to be troubled or doubt in our hearts. See my hands and my feet with those precious scars of the sacrifice. You see, seeing is believing. Or is it? There's the example of Thomas who was who has to see and touch and the senses being engaged for it to be real. But he was real nonetheless. John 20, verse 20, 29. Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. It's us. This is us. We can't actually see him, hear him, or touch him, but we can't see him with the eyes of our hearts, and we can't hear him through the word preach. We may not be able to touch him at this moment, but he certainly touches us spiritually. He provided his bodily resurrection to many eyewitnesses in the testimony of the risen Savior has endured for over 2,000 years. Matthew 24, 35 says, Christ says heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The Savior lives today. He is in heaven. He's mediating for his people. We cannot see him, but he is nonetheless real. Where is your faith, church? Is it in something you have to see? What is faith then? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the things not seen. Is your faith seen? It's as real as our very own existence. Look around you. Look around you. You see it? Let's give him the obedience that he earned on the cross that day. By his stripes you were healed. I have two last questions. The questions are, is here where we get off the road or is here where we get on it? May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Gracious God in heaven, we come at this time. You have given it to us. It is from your hand. It is your grace. You have blessed us with a Savior and Redeemer. You have, you have provided a sacrifice yourself. The blood atoning for our sin. And as we even come to this time now that we would recognize and we would remember, thank you for reminding us, Lord, through your word. We are in constant need to be reminded. And I pray today that we do have eyes to see and that we are encouraged and edified. Even when we doubt and fear, oh God, that you would just, just come be with us and bless us. We know that you are. Your word says you are. And I pray today for those that are here those that have heard your word, that it would be sanctifying, that we would be blessed by the hearing, and that we would bless, be blessed by the seeing. Not just of our eyes, Lord, but of our hearts.
We ask that the Lord is precious to you.